Take a script called Bug Hunt at Outpost 9, tweak it to fit a famous sci-fi novel the studio had the rights to, filter it through the mind of a deranged Dutch filmmaker working through his childhood trauma of living in Nazi-occupied Holland, give it a hundred million dollar budget, and what do you get? You get fucking Starship Troopers. Do you want to know more? 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who spent yesterday hanging out with a Border Collie puppy called Finn. You jealous? Aw, I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., and I am a little bit jealous, Keir. I am. Was he, he adorable? I'm assuming Finn is a male. Yeah, yeah, Finn is a male, and he is very, very adorable. Um, Do dogs was... worry about this whole gender binarity thing? Like, could he be a, uh, you know, a... Uh, a non-binary bin? You know, I think the thing that I like about dogs is that I feel like they don't give a fuck about anything. I feel like their, <laughs> their motivations in life are very pet. simple. And it's, you know... And, I mean, there's, like, that argument to say that dogs don't actually feel any real affection for human beings. And it's all uh, it's it's all basic cognitive... It's, it's basically learned behavior in order to um, get food and um, comfort and affection. But, you know what? Well, I like somebody's to Somebody's been watching dog- Adam Ruins Everything. Hmm. I, I like to believe that dogs are just loving, wonderful creatures. So it was I, a... I like that idea, too. So this week, there's no trending topic, as there's a lot of reviews to get through, because we have reviews for it. Love, Simon, A Quiet Place, Ready Player One, Unsane, Isle of Dogs, and Blockers. So we will then be jumping straight into our featured discussion, which is Paul Verhoeven's 1997 film, Starship Troopers. <laughs> All right, Austin. So it's been a you know it, it's been a little while, and finally I'm bringing back the rating system. I know how much you like the rating system. So oh, I was wondering about that. Okay, good, good. So the rating system this week is: Would this film survive in a bug hunt? Okay. So all right, so we're going to jump in initially. I think with blockers, which is a sort of. I mean, the way it's kind of being advertised is kind of like super bad for girls. It's sort of has two storylines. One is set around uh, three girls who decide that they are going to lose their virginity on prom night. And then the other storyline is about the their three parents who are who discover this plot and decide that they want to stop them, i.e. being the cock blockers of the uh, of the film. And, and and the film kind of has a lot of gross-out humor. It's trying to sort of be that sort of more body comedy. However, I, I have said, while there were definitely a lot of points that I, I, I found very funny, and I think there's a lot of really good people in the cast, like Leslie Mann, Ike Barinholtz, and especially John Cena as the parents are all really, really funny. And I liked the teenage actresses, um, especially there is um, an actress called... Um, I actually, which, her name is, um, I think it's Geraldine Viswanthan, Viswanthan, I, uh, well, this, this is always, this is always the fun part of the podcast where I have to try and pronounce a name, but yeah, (laughs) she's the, she's the, uh, she's the actress of Indian or Pakistani, um, descent. I don't know what her, 
background is. But um, she's very, very funny. In the UK, um, you would generalize and say Asian, and in America, we generalize and just say Indian. So uh, I'm not sure that those racial stereotypes help, but for people out there, if you want to be uh, an overgeneralizing racist, Asian or Indian is what we're getting at. Anyway, point is, she's very, very funny, and she's I'd never seen her before, um, and I think she's great, and I hope to see her in more things. But overall, I think I had a really odd thing with this film because I kind of feel like this film wants to have its cake and eat it too. Like, it wants to be like this rah-rah pro-female sexuality, and the whole point is kind of like, oh, the girls, they can be just as kind of, you know, it's it's the kind of post-bridesmaids thing. The girls can be just as body and gross as the guys, but at the same time, there's still a preciousness with which the film treats the characters, and I can't really get into this without sort of also getting into spoilers, but I just felt like, the thing is, if you watch a film like American Pie, you watch a film like Superbad, part of the whole way that this works is the characters are the characters are kind of humiliated over the course of the film. Like they are there's an element to which part of it is they do stupid things in pursuit of what they of 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 sex and they end up sort of being humiliated often as a result of that. And that's part of it is the sort of these gross out set pieces. And the biggest thing that happens happens to one of the dads and otherwise the girls are kind of left unscathed and precious and there's a kind of preciousness to the way that it treats female sexuality which I think everyone's kind of ignoring and I find very kind of it's there's not the kind I I don't think this is a sort of gender flip on that type of comedy because I think there's still an element to which they still feel they have to be overly sensitive towards female sexuality that I think is really does the film a big disservice. Not to mention, I I also think, I also think um, Kay Cannon, this is her first uh, film is not a very good director. She, her, her grasp of um, visuals language is really, really bad. And the film looks incredibly cheap and shitty. Um, Like, it like embarrassing levels of bad at points. Like it's if you go into like there's uh, a bit in the hotel where it just looks so underlit and the whole thing just looks like they just ran into a hotel lobby and shot it in five minutes, which I know they didn't because they have they have the kind of money and resources to not be doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, it's LGBT subplot is embarrassing and the um and the the way that it shifts into sentimentality towards the end is trite and shitty um and it's it's a problem because there were quite a few points in this film where i did genuinely laugh and i did think it was funny but i i swear to god i think i kind of think everyone's giving this film a pass at the moment because it's directed by a woman and because it's uh you know supposed it's it's uh, supposed to be a, a positive um, film about female sexuality, but I think there's a deeply reductive streak running through this that I do not feel that I am the right person to write the think piece on, but I really <laughs> think should there should be some sort of think piece written on because I think there's an element to which this film just infantilizes, you know, it's, um, it's uh, fem- young female characters. Also, I'd yeah. just like to point out too, it, there's also a very naive element to this film where it's just kind of like it's acting like three 18-year-old girls are just completely oblivious to sex. Okay, so how would it do on a bug hunt? 
on a bug hunt, this thing would not come back alive. It's it's you know <laughs> okay. I you know I don't think it's necessarily going to die badly, but I think it's just I think it's it's too naive and headstrong and launches into something it doesn't really know what it's doing and then gets killed off pretty immediately. But I don't think it okay. suffers a lot. Okay. Um, okay. All right. All right. So next we're going to go to Ready Player One. Oh, I'm excited to hear what you think about this. This is the film that everyone is talking about right now. So Ready Player One is a film by a little filmmaker called Stevie Spielberg. Um, Oh, Stevie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First time filmmaker, right? He's a buddy. You may have heard of him. Up and coming, yeah. And it is set in a future dystopia in 2045 where... You know, even that far into the future, everyone still won't shut up about the fucking 80s. Um, <laughs> and um, and yeah, so it's set around the idea that in this future, there is this giant interactive virtual reality world called the Oasis and that everyone kind of lives and um, interacts in the Oasis and that the um, the regular world is kind of shitty and dystopian and um, ev- but everybody sort of like goes into this to escape from that and be whoever they want to be. Uh, Mark Rylance is the creator of this and when he died he put out this kind of challenge to find these three keys which will ultimately uh, whoever beats these three challenges and gets these three keys will then have we'll get to own the oasis and do with it whatever they want. So our main character is a block of so wood. So it's like, like Willy Wonka? Like yeah, it's very, very Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. but, well, and I think there's a reason why in the trailer um, World of Pure Imagination was the uh, was the song that was kind of playing in the background. But yeah, so our, our main character is a plank of wood played by Ty Sheridan um, who... A plank of wood. <laughs> um, who wants ah, to? I thought you liked Ty Sheridan. I, I like Ty Sheridan. He's not good at this movie. But then again, I'm not sure he's like he's working with much. But I think you know what it is though too. Though I think that one of the things with Ty Sheridan <laughs> is he's clearly one of he's clearly one of these kids who you know because like because like the sto- the story goes. I don't know how much this is true, but he was. He was hired for Tree of Life because he was just some kid in Texas and that he's like he wasn't like a movie guy. He wasn't into like films or anything like that. Like him, like supposedly I heard that him, like him and his family didn't even know who Brad Pitt was. And I, I find that hard to believe. But it's that that was that was the story I was told. And okay. and I and I think, you know, when you look at that, you look at Mud, you look at um, Joe. These are him playing kind of naturalistic kind of real kids. And right. I, I don't know if that totally translates when you have to put him in a lead role where he's got to be like a charismatic leading man who the audience wants to follow. And this is kind of like what we talk about quite a lot, which is the, the, the sort of the challenge of being a lead often means that you have to just be a screen presence that people want to follow. And I'm not sure Ty Sheridan is that. I actually think Olivia Cook, the female lead, I think she's much more charismatic. But then again, I think she also has a little bit more to do. Um, but anyway, so basically, it, he's like the childhood version of Casper Van Dien. Is that what you're saying? Oh, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that. <laughs> but anyway, um, point is, he um, he ends up uh, he he ends up figuring out the first challenge which um, ends up befriending uh, a whole bunch of other people. And then there's also this corporation who that's run by Ben Mendelsohn that wants to basically 
get control of the Oasis so they can put lots of ads in it and kind of control it because it's a huge potential revenue stream. And so they have like this army of like gamers that they've hired to um, to win these challenges. But um, but but uh, the plucky underdogs. They're the, they're the Slugworth. They're the Slugworth. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, the exactly. Other, yeah, yeah. They're trying to get the everlasting gobstopper before the other kid does because they want to get the secret ingredient. Okay, I'm feeling it. Basically, and yeah, and but Ty Sheridan and his plucky band of underdogs aren't gonna let that happen. And meanwhile, along the way, like everything, like like every five minute, well, not for five minutes, every thirty seconds, is some kind of like reference to something that's supposed to like pat you on the back and go, "Hey, you remember this thing? You're you're smart for remembering this thing because you know, it's like, "Hey, do you remember Buckaroo Bonsai? Cuz we do. Isn't that cool that we both know that? Isn't that awesome?" And that that's kind of that's that's basically the the movie's appeal in a nutshell is, "Hey guys, remember the Iron Giant? Did you watch uh did you watch um South Park? Like I think it was like the season before last where they had this plot line about these things called member berries. No, I don't really, I'm not like, I kind of just dip in and out of South park. Well, there was like this, this through line throughout it of like, um, people were getting really upset. So they just started eating things called member berries. And it's just these little berries that go, Hey, remember, remember Atari? Yeah, I remember. Hey, do you remember, uh, do you remember Jurassic Park? Yeah, I remember Jurassic Park was great, you know, and it's just like they do that over and over again, just with things that you, you, you recognize. And that's basically what this film is. This film is just nothing but kind of like references. I mean, the, the plot line is a fairly, see, the problem with this film is like every, Steven Spielberg film it's masterfully crafted I mean it's well it's it's obviously visually uh really well put together and on that level you can't I mean the, the man is a technical genius you can never like take that away from him but he, the problem is that this film potentially can tap into some really interesting ideas about where society is going and our connection to virtual reality and our connection to um, these online spaces. Because, of course, to a certain extent, this stuff already exists. The idea that people, you know, live in these sort of online worlds, you know, things like World of Warcraft and, you know, where where they get to choose the version of themselves that they want to be and show that and, it, you know, manifest. Or just social also, media in general where you get to choose the version of yourself that you want to be. <laughs> and I, I get that, but I'm, 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 I also mean like the actual – Literal of sense, creating yeah. literal virtual reality characters that you pretend to be yeah. the RPGs, they do that already exists. So I think very directly, it's um, and I mean with the more and more closer uh, the advent of you know with the, the more we develop VR, this is going to inevitably going to end up in uh, this sort of virtual reality style thing that you see in the film. And so there's there's a lot of potentially interesting themes there to explore. Uh, Spielberg, and I'm pretty sure the book that it's based off of, do not give a shit about any of that. That is kind of the window dressing, um, and the actual meat of it is lots of references to pop culture shit. And I think there's an insidious element to that because um, that is becoming more and more what all of all our popular media is any any anymore is sequels to things you already remember you know um you know remakes of things and it's just like nothing new can exist anymore all that is left anymore is just rejigs of old ideas just over and over again with no kind of goal to do anything other than to trigger that little uh 
chemical reaction in your brain that makes you happy when you can recognize things. Um, mm. And because that, that, that's all that's all a reference is, you know, uh, you know, those Easter eggs, those references, they, there's no nutritional value to them. They are simply there because they trigger a response in your brain, which makes you happy because you recognize something, which is something that you that, that a baby, you know, that, that, that's that's something makes a baby happy. So, right. Yeah. Ready Player One, while it's a fine, it's absolutely fine. It's harmless in the sense of like as a movie, it's mildly entertaining. I think it's representative of a far more horrible and insidious cultural trend. Okay, so how would it do on a bug hunt? Um, I have a feeling – well, here's the thing. Um, as a film itself, if I'm taking away my problems with the – of what it represents, um, I would say that it probably gets back from the bug hunt with – at least a couple of limbs missing. Like it, it manages to survive, but it doesn't survive well. Um, okay. But if I'm, if I, if I want, if I, if if it, if I'm going down to my deep preferences and my my fears about uh, the the horrible stupidity that it actually represents, uh, I'm shooting it myself before the before the bugs <laughs> even get a chance to. I'm I'm not letting it get a chance to okay. survive the bug hunt. Okay. All right. All right. What's next? Okay, so um, we're going to talk about a film that I have very little to say about, which is Wes Anderson's I Love Dogs, which is his hmm. second uh, foray into stop motion, involves a dystopian future Japan where uh, a outbreak of disease among dogs um, forces all of the dogs to be located to a trash island called I Love Dogs. Um, and uh, then the story revolves around a set of five dogs who are trying to help a young boy who crashes on the island who is looking for his long-lost dog. So, um, I just really have... I This film is odd in the sense that it's some of... It's Wes Anderson... It's, it's very Wes Anderson in some ways. In other ways, it's kind of going into some odd territory that you haven't seen from Wes Anderson, which is kind of this... Things of things like uh, elements of dystopian science fiction. So it's got like robot dogs and this this sort of big political conspiracy and and it's 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 overstuffed is what I would say. It's like the production of it, the execution of it, all looks beautiful, but it's overstuffed with a kind of long rambling narrative and too many characters. And I just yeah, I just I was it was kind of fine. There were bits I liked. There were definitely some some, you know. And I, I think that's the thing with a with a great filmmaker, you're often going to encounter points in the film where they are just great at what they do. So, you know, some some of it works. Some of it works really well. But I mean, the overall package to me just left me feeling very cold and i what's what's the what's the response from like the hardcore twee wes anderson fans well it's interesting because it's got something like a 93 percent on rotten tomatoes like it's been really well reviewed but at the same time i feel like when i listen to reviewers when i listen to like i i don't really find anyone loving it um it's just everyone's like yeah it's good but they're not enthusiastic like they were about grand budapest or like some people are about some of his other films. When I'm 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 very patchy with Wes Anderson. I'm about I'm very fifty fifty with his filmography, and I don't know. This one just really didn't do much for me. And the problem is honestly, it's just I I feel I always feel this with Wes Anderson when his films don't work for me. 
I don't really have much to say about them. It's like mm. Moonrise Kingdom, for example, I don't like because I find the whole kids romance thing just doesn't work for me. And also it makes the tweeness of it like 10 times more intense and more obnoxious. Um, and I think that's it. I think there's an element to which a lot of the things I love about Grand Budapest have nothing to do with the over-manufactured production design elements of it. Like a lot of the aesthetics of Wes, like people get obsessed with the aesthetics of Wes Anderson. And I'm not sure the aesthetics are something I ever really care that much about. Um, why I love Grand Budapest is because I think it's really sharply written and I think Ray Fiennes is hilarious in it. And that's the stuff I care about. Whereas this, I just, I don't think the writing was ever really good enough. And I just don't think the, um, I don't think the characters were something I, I cared enough about within the film. I, I, I guess, you know, in, in the broadest strokes, it just, again, it just left me very cold and felt like a really, like um, Bradley went to see a, an exhibit that they had in South Bank, which was all like these um, dioramas and sets of the, um, of, from the, from the stop motion. And I was kind of thinking like, that's probably the best way to enjoy this movie to just kind of go like, <laughs> look at the, right. look at the little um, stop motion sets that they made. And I just, um, yeah, I just, I just didn't care very much. And I, so this is again, so like I said, badly, it's too long. So how badly does this film get crushed on a bug hunt? Because I, like, I feel like Wes Anderson's tweeness would not survive on a bug hunt. No. And I mean, I, the, the one other thing I'll say about it quickly is, and I, the other thing too, is that there's people who want to make a, a fuss about this on a cultural appropriation level or make it about like, or annoyed about the Japan thing. I, 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 I don't care about that either. It's like, it's, it's the film is so kind of like, yeah, fine. That I just, I, I, I can't be bothered to even sort of like, I, I can't be bothered to argue about it on a deeper, deeper level than that. So it was, okay. it was more just, I wanted to name check that that's a thing that's going around. And I just, I, I honestly just don't care about it enough to actually have a, <laughs> okay. have any kind of reason discussion about it. But anyway, on a bug hunt, I think this film, I, I, I don't know. I don't think this film would survive a bug hunt. It's, it's a, I mean, if we're talking about the, the quality is the thing that gets it through the bug hunt. I mean, I think, I think it maybe puts up, a valiant fight for a bit, but it's, it's going down. Is this one of those films? Like, you know how, uh, and I'm totally going to stereotype here. I'm from orange County. And when people play on the golf course, there are always those people on the golf course. And it's typically a lot of times, uh, you get wealthy Asian tourists that come over to orange County and they have like all the gear. They got the best shoes. They look perfectly aesthetically. They've got the newest clubs, but they can't really play golf that well. Is, do you think I, that would be, that would be, I could, movie? I I could I could agree or disagree with that, Austin. But then that would be a totally different rating system and completely blow my rating system out the window. So how well, dare I mean, you step in hunt. and try and for the bug well, hunt? Like they've the got bug... all the gear, they've got the best. Nets, oh, okay. So you mean like, like they're they're on the so they got like a mech suit and they've got like yeah, they're yeah, looking they look like, gr- and they look great and they, they look, look great. like Tom Cruise in Edge of Tomorrow is what they look like. But yeah. at the same time, they still get fucked up because they're just not <laughs> they, they don't know what they're doing. Okay, sure, why not? We'll we'll go with that. Okay. Okay, okay. I'm glad I could contribute. All right, what's next? Okay, so I'm going to go through this one quite quickly because um, it's, I, again, I, I don't think I have a lot to say about it. It's um, Unsane, the uh, new film from my boy Steven Soderbergh. And, of course, I want to see it in cinema because everybody, because I have to see everything Steven Soderbergh does in cinema. Um, and the film revolves around Claire Foy doing possibly the worst American accent I've heard in a long time. Like, I think we're approaching levels of Keanu in Bram Stoker bad. And it's, it's, it's just tremendously awful. 
Um, I mean, is there a reason for it? Is she like an immigrant and she like has lived in multiple places? And no. So she's she has Boston, a muddled accent? It. No, she's from Boston. Um, okay. She's not doing a Boston accent, but she's from Bo- the, the character is supposed to be from Boston. But it's okay. the film. She sounds I, I think the best way I heard it described was it's like America is, is that uh, Claire Foy is doing an American accent 60 percent of the time. And that 60% sometimes changes even within the sentences that she's saying. Ah, so yes. it's okay. – th- that, that'll give you some idea of what, like, listening to her doing an American accent is. But, okay. you know, I, the, the thing that they sort of told, talked about this film was that it was shot in 14 days on an iPhone. And that's the kind of the gimmick of it. So I imagine there probably wasn't a lot of prep time for her to kind of, like, learn the American accent. And I think the American accent is one that people kind of assume they can do because they've heard it a lot. And I think it's, like, it's deceptively simpler than people think. So it's deceptively Mm. harder than people think. People think it's simpler. Um, Especially a general American accent. If you can hide behind something that's a little bit more bigger and bodier, like a New York or or Southern accent, it's a little bit easier. But, like, a general American accent, I think, is trickier than people think. But anyway... So the film, so she's a woman who's moved to a new town because she had a, there was a guy who was stalking her. She thinks she's still seeing this guy um, sort of like popping up in places. And so she goes to a facility to deal with her stress. Um, The facility gets her to sign some forms. And before she realizes she has been committed under her, she doesn't read the form. So she's been committed without her realizing it. And they keep finding ways to keep her there as long as her insurance is paying out. Um, and yeah, it's, it's all right. It's kind of like, it's, um, it's disposable, which is one of those things that I think more and more with something like the advent of Netflix, I think is more and more something that will die in the cinema is the idea of disposable cinema that you just, something you just go to for 90 minutes and it was kind of a mildly entertaining watch. It was just kind of like, fun little story um and because i think everything has to have some kind of weight to it now because it has to suggest a reason for why you need to go to the cinema and i think that's why you know more and more sort of the sundance the indie films they'll all be on netflix because they're too small low-key and disposable rather than you know something that you get out of your house and go to the cinema to watch um and i think I think this is not Steven Soderbergh's best. I, the one thing I will say, too, is that I don't really get what the point of shooting it on an iPhone was, uh, other than that he could. Um, Tangerine, which is the obviously the other sort of big example of a film shot on an iPhone, it had some logical reasoning behind it because it was sort of shot on the streets of LA. I'm pretty sure like without permits and it had this kind of really raw immediate feel where it's like, you can't shut down these streets. You can't, um, you, you, you can't like, uh, spend, you know, two hours setting everything up. You just need to go for it. And it, and it works and it feels kind of very, real and immediate whereas this like because not only is he shooting it on an iphone but he's using the iphone in a, in the realms of a traditional you know film camera it's, it's he's using sort of tracking shots and he's using um he's using obviously some kind of adjustment or lens um to kind of get like long shots on things it's it's uh to change like the focal length it's he's and it, it leaves you kind of wondering if you're just shooting this in a traditional way what is the point of shooting it on an iPhone. And there's nothing in the story that suggests why the iPhone 
is the best means to tell this story. Um, and in actual point of fact, leads to an awful lot of really ugly and shitty looking photography. So mm. I don't know. I'm a little bit uncertain. I mean, I suppose I could go from the standpoint that the and ends up meaning that they're using a lot of wide angles, which are all which are completely, you know, all in focus. There's no plane of focus in it, which means that occasionally it's a, that is that it, it leads to potentially some kind of feeling of everything being slightly off or uncomfortable or strange. But I feel like that's me reaching to give it credit. Um, right. It's fine. It's like if it was if it was coming, I, I think its best bet would be coming back from the bug hunt, but being completely paralyzed and debilitated. It's like okay, it's, that's, that's it, my favorite. It, my favorite review or my favorite sort of like conclusion that you come to is when you just say. It's fine. <laughs> That's like my favorite. Like I kind of almost look forward to it. I'm like, is the fine coming? Like it's fine. <laughs> but it's, it's like, but you you know what I mean? Like it's communicating with blinks. Yeah. If it's coming back, it's it, that that's its best bet. Listen, in a world of oversaturated media, anyway, it's fine is actually not that bad of an assessment, right? Like you said, with with so much going on with Netflix and things like that. To, to receive an It's Fine rating from Kier is actually a rather positive endorsement, so... What I'm, I'm, okay. I'm kind of building here. I don't know if you've, you've realized this. I'm building up a little bit. Um, okay, so anyway, what's, what's next, then? A Quiet Place uh, from Okay, I've been the, hearing a lot about this. I, from I've been the hearing a lot of people saying that you need to go John see Krasinski. it. Or that I need to go see it. That people need to go see it. Um, yes, this is from the auteur... Jim from the office, um, who has gotten, <laughs> who's gotten kind of bodied up of late. You know, oh. he's, he's starring in, he's starring in Michael Bay action films. He's, he's, uh, he's, um, you know, he, he's going to be, he's the new Jack Ryan. And now he's directing horror films. It's like, he's done this. See, it's, it's like, it's like that weird thing, right? Where this is going to sound mean, but you always looked at like John Krasinski and Emily Blunt and you kind of said, yeah, that's a lucky man. He's he's reaching there. You know, this is this is you kind of wonder how that happened a little bit, because obviously he's like the cute kind of dorky guy in the office. But, you know, that was always the point was that he was kind of a bit of a dorky dude. And, you know, now he's like now he's gotten like buff, you know, you know, he's like, um, you know, he's he's like I said, he's he's going to be Jack Ryan and he's gone from directing really kind of terrible indie movies because he directed two movies previously, The Hollers and, um, what was it called? Uh, Confessions of Hideous Men. Um, and yeah, and, and now instead he's directing like Platinum Dunes horror films. So, you know, the, the, maybe what's happened is that he decided he needed to step his game up once he married Emily Blunt and needed to become <laughs> the, 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 a man that people thought she deserved. Um, uh, <laughs> Is that like the? Is, uh, am, am, uh, I being, am I being a real dick here? Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, but I mean, um, anyway, okay. So, film stars John Krasinski and Emily Blunt as a couple living in a sort of post-apocalyptic world where essentially the entire. I, I mean, it's 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 small scale in the sense that we really only see this one family, um, and it's sort of set around their farmhouse. But you get the impression that something has happened to the world. Um, and it's not really explained, but basically the, the upshot of it is that the world's now inhabited by these creatures that essentially hunt purely through sound. 
like that they can't um they 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 they, they don't have any sight um as far as i can they don't seem to have any smell it's just sound that's their only kind of um mechanism for interacting with the world so it means you can't make anything you can't do anything that'll that'll attract them so it, it has a lot of things like for instance when they go places they put down sand so it's so it uh, will muffle their their footsteps. Um, they speak in sign language, and almost the entire film is in sign language. Like there's very little where they actually talk with each other, because even when they're in the house, they're kind of like they can't they can't make any noises. So it's even there's a, it's like a pit where they're playing Monopoly, and they've made all of these like felt versions of like hotels and stuff like that, and um, everything is like muffled so that the board can't make any noises. Um, and so, yeah, um, and one of the things is also they have a, uh, they have a, they have an actual deaf daughter, um, who is actually played by, um, a deaf actress. And one of the problems there is that she also is the, the, the fear and the tension around is that she also can't, because she can't hear things herself. She also doesn't necessarily know if she's making noise, if there's danger around or anything like that. So there's, it adds an extra layer of kind of like tension to everything. Um, meanwhile, Emily Blunt is also pregnant and is near her due date. So of course, then there's also how do you give birth in this world and how are you going to, how, how do you keep a baby alive? Cause babies tend to be pretty fucking noisy. Um, right. So there's a lot of kind of tension reamed out of like day-to-day activity and how you can survive in a world where you can make no noise. Um, and I think if this film is really, really smartly done in the way that it, it sort of creates, it creates tension through very, very simple ideas and set pieces and uses the creatures very, very sparingly. So you, an awful lot of the film, they are kind of kept on the fringes and you get this sort of, and and you only get hints of them. And I think the smart thing about it is that it real, it's, you know, it's like, um, it's like the, the, the famous thing about Jaws is how, you know, the shark looks so shitty that they ended up not using it very much because, and so it had to create this find ways of making you realize the creature was around without actually, you know, showing it. And I think, again, this film is smart in the sense that you very rarely see like just the full thing standing there looking directly at you. It's kind of always sort of on the fringes. And I think, and I think actually the thing that's the best horror films Usually what it is is that they find some way of also connecting everything to very relatable human emotions and fears. And the big one here is parenthood and the kind of the the fear of protecting your children um, and the fear of, say, you know, I think, you know, the fear of the fears that come, the natural fears that come through childbirth, because, of course, childbirth was something Mm. that, you know, at one point was probably one of the biggest killers of women. Um, It is a, and it manages to kind of touch on all of these things while still being a really lean, um, entertaining horror film. But I will say that the big thing too is make sure you go to a cinema with polite people because the soundtrack on this, the sound design is so quiet because every sort of small sound 
they sort of heighten while keeping everything else really low. You will hear everything going on in the cinema. Okay. So how does so, this film do on a bug hunt? I think this film is Johnny Rico. It 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 blasts a hole in the back of the bugs, explodes it, comes back and gets the uh, and gets the medals for it. Oh damn! Does it take you know, a shot in the leg at all, like Rico does? No, or no, is no. It this go, is go through unscathed. It, it'll it'll go through unscathed. It'll you know, and you know what? It, it'll it'll take it'll take its award its 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 commendations, um, and it'll go out and give you some more. Oh well, okay, okay. I like it. All right, all right. So what's uh, what's the final film that you're going to talk about? So the final film is Love Simon, which is. People look at me oddly for this, but this is actually a film I've been really looking forward to because I don't know why, but for some reason, as I get older, like sort of studio films about sort of high school coming of age really do it for me. Don't don't <laughs> don't ask me why, but I, I, I loved well, I really liked Lady Bird. I loved um, Edge of Seventeen. I like Easy A. I love Mean Girls. I'm so what can I say? Shit does it for me. Glossy high school movies do it for me for some reason. What about like the uh, indie ones, like Me Earl and the Dying Girl? And I still haven't like actually that. seen Me Earl and the Dying Girl. Spectacular Now. I do. I love Spectacular Now, except for the last like two minutes. I don't like the last two minutes of it, but otherwise I love it. Um, okay. uh, I but but for the record, I hate Fault in, Fault in Our Stars. So there's 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 definitely a level to this thing that I don't like. Um, yeah, what was the one paper towns? Yeah, I did not watch that one either, um, <laughs> because I hated Faults in Our Stars so much that I was like, no, I'm not watching Paper Towns. Um, anyway, go ahead. So this film is about Simon. He is the perfect teenager, almost to the obnoxious extent that he's got his cool friends who they like, just kind of like hanging out and being like and 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 they're sort of all kind of witty with each other and they get he has a nice car and they get iced coffees and they and the, everything seems perfect and his parents are Josh Dumel and Jennifer Garner he gets on well with his sister and all that shit which just makes you feel like this dude needs to be fucking punched in the face quite frankly but you know what he has a secret and that secret is that he is homosexual and he does not know how to tell the people he loves and how to come out. So um, there is a kind of blog where um, the high school people in his high school post secrets. And there is a guy who uh, anonymously posts on there saying that he is gay and doesn't know how to, um, how to tell people. So um, Simon ends up uh, emailing this guy and they sort of anonymously email each other back and back sort of discussing how what it's like to be closeted and how they how they are trying to figure out who they are and um and mean and and you know it's 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 quite nice and then there's this whole kind of blackmail subplot where one of the students finds out and decides to blackmail him for some reason and that's where it starts to get into the she's all that kind of slightly sweaty high school territory where the mechanics of it start to grind a little bit and it's like you know i was like i was really enjoying the film that was just about the dude trying to figure out his place in the world and everything and and i was i was liking that and then the blackmail stuff starts to get a little bit overegged and but it's fine it's fine um this movie gave me the feels i got very 
It was like it was it was especially around like parent shit because parent shit fucks me up. But um, yeah, like I thought as much as this film is glossy and very Hollywood and very structured in terms of what it's doing, it's very much studio film. Um, It is surprisingly nuanced in the way that it deals with a lot of these issues and deals with them very smartly. And it's, it's interesting to compare it to say a film like blockers where I feel like the LGBT plotline of it was trite and badly handled here. I mean, obviously this is the main focus of it here, but it is so smart in the way that it deals with, you know, the, this kid trying to come to terms with his, with who he is, because high school is obviously the point where we're trying to figure out who we are to a certain extent, and that is, you know, and with this added pressure coming on top of it, it's, you know, it's it it's interesting. I think a lot of the themes that it touches on are really, are really interesting and really well handled, and it's a little bit like, I can't go into them totally without sort of getting into spoilers on it, but I think both... Josh Dumel and Jennifer Garner are really great as the parents in two very surprisingly well-handled low-key scenes that, and I, I actually like the fact that rather than this film being about like, everyone's a homophobe and like, that's, that's, that's what, you know, and it's, it's, he's having to face all of this anti-gay hatred and stuff like that. It's actually about really much more about kind of just trying to figure out who you are and how you tell people that and whether you should have to tell people that. And it's, I think it's, I think it's great. And then also it's kind of, it's essentially a kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of got its, it's dumb kind of romantic comedy element to it where it's like, who is the guy on the other end? And it's like him trying to figure out who the guy is and he has sort of people he suspects. And then, you know, they, somebody will get canceled out for this reason. And he's kind of trying to work it out. And then when you find out who it is at the end, it's very cute and it's really adorable. And it just left me with a really kind of elated (laughs) feeling at the end. And I was very happy. And this film, despite what you, despite what you would look at it and think of it, this film, it's, it's coming, it's coming back from that bug hunt completely unscathed, having just decimated the uh the the all the bugs it it killed all the bugs kills all the bugs hey, kills all the bugs it? that's that you put that on the poster for love simon love simon kills all the bugs are you watching atypical on netflix no i'm not i didn't hear good things about it okay i, I was wondering if that would fit just because we were listing off other sort of coming of age stories i wonder how that would fit into your into your um penchant for this type of film never mind moving on it's not as important go see go see it is what you're saying yes i'm saying go see love simon because i i will say i think the thing that's interesting about it is i've seen a lot of think pieces um i've not read a lot of them i've mostly read the headlines um because i you know i really really liked this film probably loved it and i really don't want to just see people quibble about stupid political opinions in it because i feel like what people are talking about is less about the film and what their own political leanings are um and how the film reflects up to them on that and so it's it's like this thing of my feeling is that yes it's glossy and it is to a certain extent contrived and yes of course it's an affluent good-looking white kid who is struggling with his identity and but at the same time i also kind of think like 
my feeling is, why can't that happen? Why can't you have, like, the glossy, happy, gay, coming out high school drama? Because that that's not really, doesn't really exist, you know? And so why does every movie about gay people then like, cause people are going like, Oh, well it doesn't touch on anything about sexual health or, and it's very chaste and, you know, and it's, uh, and it's, you know, it, it's not dealing with how this would, you know, affect people from a much more difficult background. And it's kind of like, that's not it. It's a frothy romantic comedy about starring a gay character, and, you know? And it's, so it's, it's exactly the same to me as saying like, Oh, um, why is When Harry Met Sally about two white people? Why is When Harry Met Sally about two people who are fairly financially well off? It's 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 like it's it's the same sort of thing, you know. Why can't right. gay people just have the happy, frothy, romantic comedy? You know what's crazy? So this is interesting to actually have this conversation. I went in for an audition for a uh, relatively well-known production um, by a pretty well-known gay author that was in London a couple of years ago, and I remember I was made it to. Uh, you know, we were in the second callback phase, and we sat down, and I was talking with the director, and I said to him, and it's a it's a love story um, about uh, about two kind of men in their in their twenties, and I remember I was chatting with him, and I said something along the lines of, um, I said the thing that I think that's so profound about this film is that it doesn't it, it doesn't matter in the first instance whether or not these characters are gay. This is just simply a love story between two humans, and he actually found that really offensive. And I was trying to explain to him. I said, actually, I think it's it's far more subversive if you just make this simply a story about two humans, and then you make that so regular and so quote unquote normal that the the homosexual aspect isn't. You're not self-referentially or self-reflexively like patting yourselves on the back, throwing it into people's face that this is a gay love story, that that actually makes it more subversive because then it becomes normalized and it becomes something that actually sort of breaks the, the even the debate about whether or not it is normal to be in this type of relationship. And I said, and that's what's truly subversive about this. And he didn't like it, and ultimately I didn't get the part, and I think it was because of that. Um, but uh, but I still – I disagree with him to this point or to this day, and we're, we're actually friends and shit, and we chat on Facebook and whatnot. But to this day, I still disagree with him, and I think that his perspective on it is wrong because when you're so self-referentially self-aware that you're trying to be political, a lot of times it diffuses the power of the story, whereas if you just simply do something and you just presume uh, a higher ethical order, so to speak, then that actually has greater, I think, impact on a viewing audience. When I think... I think the interesting thing about that, too, is um, essentially... I, I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in this idea that there's only one kind of gay story as well, which is that it's like that thing of like Moonlight can exist and this film can exist and they can be two completely different types of movies, and but they can still tackle issues of homosexuality. And actually, one of the things that I would like, me personally, is that I would like to see movies that have nothing to do with the fact that the character is gay. I would like there to be gay characters who that is not that is not their reason for be, for being the lead in the movie is so that we can see what it's like to be a gay character. And so in a right. weird way, and I said this on Facebook at Facebook, I know that the film is still theme, themed around the notion of homosexuality, but I actually think having a glossy studio comedy um, with a sort of gay kid where it's not kind of making have making f- it's it's not like the birdcage or something like that where part of the joke is making fun of um, using gay characters to in, in a sort of humorous fashion. It is right. 
it, it feels much more like a normal high school. Normal sounds bad, but yeah, you know, it feels much more like a, your sort of traditional high school film. But it just happens to have a gay lead in the and in, in in the lead of it. I think that is actually in its own quiet way revolutionary and progressive. So I'm just I'm I'm saying I don't think because this film is not Moonlight, therefore it needs to be dismissed as not doing the right thing for the LGBT community. Um, so I I don't know I think I I like the idea of us being able to move into a world where there's a variety of types of stories that we can tell about sort of mm. about about gay people because I feel at the exactly. moment the the worthy yeah, like some of them the worthy are... film is the one that we traditionally think of. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, some of them are going to be explicitly about the struggle of a gay man, like a film like Philadelphia or something like that, right? That's going to be explicitly about uh, a homosexual struggle in a world in which homosexuality is viewed as like deviant or abnormal. But then at the same time, sometimes it's actually just really great to just simply presume the normalcy, to just presume this this different way of viewing things but without drawing attention to it so that it just embeds itself comfortably within the cultural ethos. Well, and I mean, I, I, and I think, I think, you know, I, I, I think that, I, I think also that we can do this too without moving into some kind of post-sexual, post-gender world where we're pretending like these things don't exist. I think it's just about sort of simply accepting it as part of the fabric of normal society and allowing this, uh, allowing these characters to just simply be in films that don't have to be about them, these specific elements of their character. Right, right, right. Exactly. Exactly. And with... And with that said, let's let's go into a world <laughs> that is post-racial, um, the utopian world, obvious of the uh, of the Federation. Let's um, let's talk about Starship Troopers. In every age, there is a cause worth fighting for. But in the future, the greatest threat to our survival will not be man at all. Hey, kid, what's going on? War! We're going to war! Now the youth of tomorrow must travel across the stars to defend our world. We are a generation commanded by fate to defend humankind. Everyone fights, no one quits. We are going in with first wave! You smash the entire area. You kill anything that has more than two legs. You get me? We get you, sir. But they will face an enemy more devastating than any ever imagined. Here they come! Incoming! Okay, so Starship Troopers is the 1997 film from the Dutch crazy auteur. Paul Verhoeven. Uh, the film takes place in the 23rd century, where um, we are first introduced to uh, propaganda films uh, detailing how the sort of federation of the sort of Earth seems to have been brought together into one kind of feder, you know, one sort of unified government. Uh, they are currently at war with the arachnids, or as they refer to them, the bugs, um, on a faraway planet and the uh the opening which is a kind of like uh, which sort of presents these kind of big rows of of uh, men says you need to do your part for the 
Galactic Federation. Um, and it's kind of very uh, styled in the fashion of old-fashioned sort of propaganda films. It's very heavily influenced by Lenny Riefenstein's uh, Triumph of the Will, which was, of course, a Nazi uh, propaganda film, uh, where it's kind of like, I'm doing my part. I'm doing my part. Uh, we then jump into a the story of Johnny Rico, a uh, very Aryan, good-looking Argentinian, um, very blonde, <laughs> who... Uh, you know, who, uh, where, um, who is, um, graduating from high school. He has a girlfriend, uh, played by Denise Richards and, uh, his friend played by Doogie Hauser or, um, Barney from How I Met Your Mother, uh, who are joining the, uh, who are joining the military and are sort of encouraging him to do it himself. Uh, they all end up joining together. He ends up um, in the infantry, while Carmen ends up in as a pilot, and uh, Neil Patrick Harris ends up in the sort of what's it? What do they call it? They call it games and strategy, something like that. What, for Neil, for Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, Neil Patrick Harris. Yeah, it's basically military intelligence, is what they say, but I can't remember. But it's something like that. Yeah. But basically, Johnny joins up for a girl. Um, and gets stuck in infantry, and uh, while he's in infantry, the bugs um, send a asteroid which destroys Buenos Aires, killing everyone they know, and which turns him into. Well, do we ever know uh, for who, sure uh, that they send the asteroid, or is that just what they? We'll say? get into is that this. Just what the humans say to justify it? Is it like this, is it actually this, an act of war, or was it just like some random phenomenon, cosmological phenomenon? Well, I guess I guess here's the thing with this is because we could do the film where I just explain the whole plot line or we could kind of take this piece by piece because okay, explain the plot line. No, explain the plot line. Explain the yeah. plot line and then we so, can start. OK, OK, OK. So anyway, basically, this turns Johnny Rico, who had previously been a kind of like uh, had, had been sort of lukewarm on the whole thing, wasn't that into it and was mostly joined up for a girl. Now he's kind of like I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all, you know, so yeah, they. So uh, they go down to the planet, realize that they are completely ill-equipped to fight the bugs. Everyone gets massacred, except uh, Johnny Rico is one of the uh, survivors who um, he then ends up um, joining up with his old science teacher, who is now running the baddest bug killing uh, outfits uh, called the, the Roughnecks, roughnecks. <laughs> Ratchecks Roughnecks, um, right. at which point... <laughs> and uh, Rico, Rico's Rico shows Rico shows himself off as a particularly good killer of bugs, which leads to one of my famous my favorite lines in the movie: "You kill bugs good." Um, yeah, you kill bugs good. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, they get um, they then get lured into this trap in this outpost where the bugs set a trap for them, and they realize that there is a smart bug that is sucking the brains out of people to, in order to learn more about how humanity works. So um, this also uh, there's a sort of love triangle where you know Johnny is really into Carmen. But uh, there is uh, one of their classmates, um, Dizzy, was really into Rico. And so she joins the military to get closer to Rico. And then they kind of get together. But then she gets killed off at the outpost. And, um, you know, and it's it's like it's it's tragic and it's terrible and it's it's horrible. And so so every so this is a point where Rico's Rico's lost everything at this point. And so uh, they he ends up going on a they end up going on a suicide mission to capture 
the brain bug, which by coincidence also happens to uh, the, the brain bug has captured Carmen. They kill the brain bug. They they um the brain bug ends up get another brain bug ends up getting captured and like then and and now the war the tides of war are gonna turn because um because the uh because now they they know how the bugs think and because yeah, now Neil Patrick you. Harris because Neil Patrick Harris has been honing his skills of um of telepathy. And so now he's able to actually read what the brain bug is thinking, and that's going to help them strategize for the future. So and yeah. and they need you. They need you for the mobile infantry because you know because we're going to win. <laughs> so I actually I actually think explaining the plot of this film runs into one of the very very interesting elements of this movie, which is that this movie is incredibly stupid on the surface of it it's like everything that it is doing in the in the foreground is incredibly dumb trite straightforward war drama it's everything that's going beneath the surface that's really fascinating yeah, with and it's not film. even good war drama it's war drama but cliche war drama with stupid bravado machismo dialogue stupid stereotypes um all the bullshit that you would think of that's kind of cheesy and cliche about war films that's what this film is it's like a an interstellar intergalactic cheesy cliche war film on the surface what i know you I know you don't you don't believe in yeah, I know you believe in Death of the Author and all that, but I, I think it's very interesting actually to point this well, out. Well remember, um, Death of the Author isn't exclusionary to authorial intent. It's just that mm-hmm. it's just that Death of the Author is sometimes one level of analysis that's interesting. So authorial intent is also something that is interesting as well. It's just that some people get so bogged down and it's either this mode of interpretation or it's that. Like it's well, that's not what the author meant. And it's like, well, that's fine. Maybe that's not what the author meant, but it could have lent itself to this and then at the same time well maybe this is what the author was trying to do and maybe there's something interesting about that and then you can see how successful it was so there are multiple la- layers of analysis so it's it's not but, but, it's not only death li- of the author well listening to paul verhoven talk about his intentions with this film is is fascinating because there's almost too many good quotes to to to, to put into to use but okay but like one of the ones I heard him say is that basically he really liked the idea of making a film with two narratives. On one hand, you have all of these good-looking um, kids, and they want to, like, bang each other, and they want to go fight, and they want to blow things up. And on the other hand, they're all fucking Nazis. <laughs> that was, that's that's how he described it. <laughs> and then what he, and then so Michael Ironside had read the book um, that this is based off, um, and uh, he had kind of said because he had worked with Paul Verhoeven before and he kind of said to, to him, he's like, why do you want to make this this book? Because this book is kind of a very jingoistic kind of pro-military, you know, sort of book's been called fascist. And and, uh, and uh, Paul Verhoeven said, because I want to make a film where uh, you show fascism and it's kind of really shiny and good looking and all of the uh and, and and all of the guns are super cool and everything's really like super super impressive but all it's good for is killing fucking bugs yeah 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 <laughs> which I yeah think, i mean i think there's just a fascinating element to this film where i feel like paul verhoven is just trolling the american film industry so even if you do take away authorial intent, I think at the at the surface level, it's still pretty clearly a fucking film about fascism. I mean, Neil Patrick Harris literally is wearing what looks like an SS uniform at one point. And I think if you were just perceptive to what's going on with the plot line, the idea that 
war makes fascists of us all uh, seems to be pretty apparent, you know? But it's not, it's not like, it's not just pure Nazism, though. That's the thing that I found that's so interesting about this film. It's almost that, like, liberal America and that the idea of, like, Western liberal values themselves, because of the militaristic impulse that drives a lot of that Western narrative, is. Uh, it has a fascistic element to it, and that's what this film explores. So, I mean, I think it's pretty apparent, even just at the level of, like, the basic plot, you know? Although I will say when I was a fucking teenager, my buddies and I actually, you know, went to see this film, and I remember a buddy that was, like, really into this movie just for being, like, a film about dudes killing bugs. <laughs> so, I- See, that's what I think is actually so fascinatingly subversive about this film is that, essentially, it is a film that... Um, gives you ex- if you, if you are looking at it on the most simplistic level, if you are just someone who really wants to watch dudes with muscles go blow up bugs, and you want to watch boobs, and you want to see like you know you, shit shit explode. If you want the Michael Bay you know version of this film, then you're gonna get that. But the thing that is that in order to get that film, Paul Verhoeven makes you root for fascists. And and then and and what's subversive about that is that Paul Verhoeven makes the fascism is is makes the fascism glossy. It's kind of like it looks nice, and that's right. what's subversive about it as well. Is rather than just simply living in a sort of easy dystopian world, you're watching the propaganda version of 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 what of of, of what fascism is. You're saying like, hey, look, everyone's happy and everyone's good looking and everyone's wealthy and it's all it's all shiny and nice and everything's fine. You can't you don't need to look beneath the surface, but it and that's what's interesting about it is that it is a it is a film where. It makes you it, it, it forces you to have to look beneath the surface because if you start if you simply absorb it on its stupid sort of shiny forefront, then it just makes you kind of look like an idiot. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think I mean obviously I've seen this movie now a bunch of times and it's been talked about for all of the these subversive themes that you're that you're indicating. Um, but as I was watching it this time, I remember or something something struck me that I don't think it ever hit me before, but it was it was paying attention to those more explicitly fascistic elements. So like in the classroom about, you know, the difference between civilians and citizens and, um, you know, that teacher and, and kind of learning and being educated. But then at the same time, also recognizing those elements of liberalism about how like, you know, um, you have to kind of like choose for yourself. And so there's this element of autonomy and freedom that they kind of also um, give to the people and. And it makes it seem as though that that what Verhoeven is doing is that he's criticizing um, he's criticizing America, you know. Uh, even though Verhoeven says that it's not simply about criticizing just America, but it's got a broader reach than that. It makes you kind of look at it in that way. And then so I started thinking about it too. And and we kind of talked about it earlier when I was when I interrupted you when you were giving your little synopsis of the movie. And I was thinking about the thing the sort of the thing that that starts the war the thing that is like the um the the straw that breaks the camel's back in the tensions between the humans and the bugs that starts this intergalactic conflict and it's that buenos aires gets completely decimated or i guess just annihilated by uh an asteroid or a comet or a meteor or whatever the fuck it was that supposedly was sent from the bug solar system or whatever and i started thinking i was like but there's never any evidence that actually tells us that the 
bugs possess that kind of technology for one two that they had the intention to do that that they were aggressors that they wanted to do that and then three it kind of also makes it just seem like actually it was probably just a fluke that like this celestial body crashed into the earth and they used that as a perfect excuse to carry out their militaristic endeavors see one of the things that i think is really really fascinating about this film is when i was um because i just going into it like I really distinctly remember this movie coming out. Like, I think I was about 11 when this movie came out and all of the, like a lot of the kids at my school saw it. And I was still at that age where my mother and father wouldn't let me go see R-rated movies. So I, but I really wanted to see it because I thought, you know, it looks really cool because like right. people are, you know, sort of killing all these giant bugs. It looks really cool. Um and I just remember kind of thinking like this, that this, this movie was some, I remember this movie being such a sort of like cultural phenomenon in my head. And then I was really same. shocked yeah, same. to find that, out was for me too. I this film like did like not a, do like well at the really box office movie because my teenage friends all wanted to go see this and they loved it. So, but yeah, go ahead. But like so you were this, shocked what? But this film was considered a financial failure because it was like, it cost a hundred million. It only made like 121. Like it was, and then it was kind of derided by a lot of critics at the time for being just some dumb movie. And it's like, and it was like, this was one of those movies that people genuinely didn't get when it came out. And I think one of the things that's really, really fascinating about it is I feel like this film has, this film almost came out in the wrong age, but it had to be made in that age to exist. Like it had to be made in the nineties, a period of time of general, at least in America of general kind of political stability. Um, you know, in a post nine 11 world, I don't think this film could be made. But it's fascinating because I feel so much of what this film is commenting on is things that become more prevalent in a post 9-11 <laughs> in a post 9-11 world. So it's like something like Buenos Aires and the sort of the impetus with which they then go to war in a foreign land where they have no real idea of how to actually execute. They just stumble into it in a completely unequipped and ill planned fashion and get decimated. And, you know, there's shades of Iraq in that of 9-11 that leads to the war in Iraq. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of elements to this film that feel very, very relevant today. And, but again, you sort of sit there and go like, this film is being made a good four or five years before 9-11 happens. And I just don't think, I don't think that a lot of people at the time were willing to look at those themes because it was almost like we lived in a, in a post-fascist world where kind of like, oh, we don't worry about these things anymore because that was something that happened in the past. And I think it's fascinating how this film to me has become more relevant uh, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, because uh, you have to remember, too, the fall of the Berlin Wall was only, what, like seven, eight years prior to this? So it would have been, yeah, because in 89, so it would have been Soviet like... Soviet Union, yeah. which is just a couple years prior to this, really, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, um, not yeah, yeah. That, not that long prior. Was this 97? 97 was when this came out, yeah. November 97. Yeah, so, so we're in this, in America, we're in this, supposedly, there's this term that gets used because of a, a philosopher, political theorist by the name of Francis Fukuyama, who said that this was the end of history, right? The end of communism and mm -hmm. the triumph of uh, Western capitalism, that history had culminated and that there wasn't going to be any other future systems or anything like that. This was it. This was just going to be now the endless kind of peaceful proliferation of Western capitalism. And so then you have this film that comes out that's basically saying, no, motherfuckers, fascism still exists. Not you only know, that, but it's a very American-centric idea of fascism. It's like, it's like yeah. if America 
went in became a fascist country because everything is very geared still around the sort of westernized american culture and like these kids again right these kids are deliberately cast to be like 90210 actors i mean i think they actually went through like 90210 and saved by the bell and stuff like that and cast people out of that yeah i mean it's almost as though he's saying this is the fascism that is particularly american yeah so it's like yeah yeah we have nazi fascism we know what that looked like sure we could talk about soviet fascism great but this is what american fascism this is the particular type of uh western liberal capitalist fascism this is what it looks like and and it doesn't let the viewer escape that criticism and then of course in the 90s like you were saying that that isn't going to land well because people were like what the fuck are you talking about of course not but after 2008 after the global financial collapse after 2000 uh, after 9/11 we have people now that are starting to look at these narratives that used to be viewed as kind of spotless and without cracks and people are starting to go wait a second so i think this film almost is more it's almost more important now or it has more import now than it would have in in 96 97 which kind of just shows that the film was very prescient um but it also just shows that Verhoeven is an interesting critical theorist that he kind of he has his finger on a pulse like a cultural pulse that allows him to be able to create these interesting tales cuz I mean, you and I covered Showgirls, right? Remember you yeah. and and you defended it, and you didn't go so far as to say that this is like some sort of brilliant critical commentary, but we kind of intimated it a few times, right? Well, the thing that the thing with Showgirls something... is that I think what I will always defend about Showgirls is that he's doing something, whether that thing something. works or whether you could parse <laughs> out what that thing is. I mean, I think even Paul Verhoeven admits he didn't Showgirls didn't work. But he was trying something with that. And there's there's a grotesqueness to Showgirls, which is so fascinatingly on the nose and deliberate, which is is meant to be representing something. Um, I right. and, and you can see shades of that here because there is an element because there's again, there's just little elements to Verhoeven that are, are, are fascinating because I, 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 I kind of think that. One of the reasons that this film exists the way it does and that he's thought about it the way he does is probably got to do with the fact that he is a guy who genuinely grew up partially in an in a country occupied by the Nazis. So the Nazis are not just a theoretical thing to him. They're not just something that we look back at history on. This is a man who genuinely grew up around them and knew what it was like to day to day be living with Nazis. And that's what I think is really fascinating about this because it's about the idea of fascism as a system rather than just as a sort of, uh, you know, in, in Indiana Jones style where like the Nazis are just evil, you know, just insert evil person here kind of thing you know they're just a, they're just a boogeyman whereas this is this film is reckoning with the idea of not only fascism as a system but actually the levels to which fascism can be intoxicating and can work for people and i think that's mm. what's that's one of the things that ends up being so kind of fascinatingly weird about and then there's also just elements where you just feel like He's just being he's just he's just he's just coming up with transgressive and imagery that's there to fuck with people. Because so, for example, the fact that when Rico is being whipped, you cannot in a million years tell me that that is not a very deliberate choice, that he has a black guy whipping this Aryan dude. And that's not made me think of Kunta Kunta Kinte when he's like it's like Kunta Kinte's revenge right right there. You know, it's like, you know, because because Paul Verhoeven thinks that shit through. Paul Verhoeven has not just accidentally (laughs) cast a black guy to do that. That is a very deliberate choice. A hundred percent, bro. (laughs) 
Yeah, um, I don't think I actually noticed that that prior to this viewing, but I'm glad you pointed that out because I was sitting there watching it and I was saying, oh, so there's a guy that's getting whipped and he's getting his lashes. And then I was also thinking like, oh, is this like a Jesus thing too? And then I was like, no, 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 it's not a Jesus thing. This is like a like a Kunta Kinte sort of roots thing. That's what he's doing here. And then obviously because you have the guy that's doing the whipping being a black dude, you're like – yeah, that's exactly what he's doing. But I, but he I think is also, trying to. I, I don't know exactly what he's saying, but he's saying something. But I think. Well, I actually think part of it is that within. I mean, I, I think he is actually because I've I've read the book. He might actually be whipped in the book as well. But I think one of the things that's interesting about it is that I think it steers into this kind of narrative of th- that I think is very prevalent within fascism, which is the idea of the person steps out of line, is punished by the state, and then becomes greater um, or more obedient because of it, because they realize that they've, they've stepped out of line and they see the, the power and the importance of the state. And so they, and so they, they that's submit right. to it. And I, and I think that's what, because what do they call it? Administrative, administrative punishment, administrative, some administrative punishment, which is an interesting way to put it. Cause then like, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's being punished by the state for your own good. It's like, it's like when people say like, you it's almost like the abusive spouse that's like, you know, you realize that I had to do that, right? Like it was for your own good kind of kind well, of that logic. Was, that's what's what they say too. It's when there. it's like when Hank from Breaking Bad says to uh, Clancy Brown, he's like, is there any way we can salvage this man? And that's the idea is they're going to salvage him by whipping him and putting him back into into line so he can be a good member of the state. Yeah, that's what love is, right? Yeah, but <laughs> – I mean, spare, kind of, spare the rod and spoil the child is the way the Old Testament put it. Well, and I think I think okay, so I think I think one of the the really really interesting things about this film, and okay, so I I watched this film when I was quite young and I didn't get it, and and when and I definitely was the kid who was like this is this is cool because they're blowing up bugs. So when I did see it, that that was the way I absorbed right. this film. And it's interesting because I feel like on a subverse on a on a subconscious level, there were certain elements of it that seemed odd to me at the time that didn't really tick with me and one of them was wait why are the good guys whipping people like why are you know and it was also like things like and uh, you know when you're a 12 or 13 you don't necessarily question film because you don't you you kind of assume everything is there because it's supposed to be there it's like the the notion of film criticism doesn't really exist for you yet all films are kind of good because they're films you know mm-hmm. and so it's interesting because I realized that in my brain I had – there were certain things that didn't work for me or didn't make sense to me that I didn't realize until later when I could see the subversive elements of the film. And one of the things, again, is the plot line. And as you brought up with the bugs, it is interesting how the film is is always through this prism of kind of propaganda. So there's this element to which we never totally know – what the actual story is. So you get these hints of it. You get this hints that there was some kind of, there's some kind of interest in the empire, the galactic federation, whatever, like sort of spreading itself out more, taking over more planets and that the bugs themselves are also sort of colonizing new planets. And these things kind of bring them into uh, conflict with each other. And that say, for instance, the, um, the uh the the more there's that whole thing about how there's like mormon settle settlers who 
I guess I guess within theory within this world Mormons are probably not you know would not be deemed part of the sort of the, the fascist state so they've clo- it's like I guess like the pilgrims or something they've gone off to try and sort of create their own colonies on other worlds and that sort of brought them into conflict with the bugs and so you see the propaganda putting this as don't don't break off from the state because you'll end up being killed off but there's clearly mm. some kind of theme of colonialization going on within this and how that brings them into some sort of problem with the bugs. But we're never really given the proper response or reason for why these, this war exists. And you're right. There is this notion to which you're kind of like, is the asteroid something that could, the bugs could have done? Like, is that some, or is this merely a, now I sound like, now I sound like I'm getting into Alex Jones type territory where it's all a, it's all a (laughs) false flag operation or whatever, but you're kind of like, there's, there's a very, turning the frogs gay. Yeah. There's very, very clear reasoning. This film gives you lots of hints to suggest that all the information you're being told is potentially wrong or skewered or or and I mean even like because there's that bit too where the reporter says some say that the, our encroachment onto the bugs territory may have uh, may have uh, been the reason that this this happened and that a live and let live policy is uh, is preferable and that's when you get Rico who of course has become a good little fascist now go I tell you I'm from Buenos Aires and I say kill them all and it's like it's yeah this movie's fucking crazy um, real quick. Okay, before we get too far into the weeds here, because we're talking about that brilliant line uh, and we're talking – well, we're not really explicitly talking, but we ought to talk about Casper Van Dien. I just have to say – and listen, man. Do your thing. Follow your dream. Make your money uh, doing the acting thing. It's great if people are going to continue to hire you. But I don't think I have ever seen in a blockbuster film – a hundred million dollar film, a leading character that is as bad as Casper Van Dien is. See, I think Denise Richards is worse. Yeah, but she's not the leading man, right? So, so okay. like, she's never been good. She's Do you know not a good the story actor, of why Casper gorgeous, Van Dien is in this but, film? No, I want to know. Please tell me. Because it makes a lot of sense when you hear it. Okay, so... Okay. So they're obviously they're doing all these castings. I think he had been on like a soap opera or something like that. I d- he hadn't done a lot of acting before this. Um, but so he comes in. And one of the things is that when they're in the audition, they end up talking to him a lot about his military service because he had been involved in the military. I can't remember at what level or what point. But they basically, as part of the audition, they had him disassemble and reassemble a rifle. And he could just kind of do that very easily. And... That's the whole thing is that Paul Verhoeven didn't cast Casper Van Dien because he thought he could play Johnny Rico. He Casper cast Casper Van Dien because he is Johnny Rico. <laughs> That's so terrible. I love it, though. That's ridiculous, man. Oh, Jesus. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He is Johnny Rico. I can see that. I mean, so I've only seen a couple of things that he's been in. He was in this movie called like the Omega Code or something like that. Like yeah, this religious. Yeah, I've heard thing. of that. That's like, isn't that a kind of that's a kind of Jesus? That's a kind of Christian movie of yeah. some sort. It's like Christian science fiction or something. Yeah, it is. It's something like that. I remember I watched it at one point when I was in my. I think I watched it with like a group of Christian kids at some sort of. Friday night Bible study group thing or something along those lines, but I remember 
I remember thinking at the time, I was like, man, he's not good. Like, he's he's a really bad actor. And I just can't help it. Whenever I watch Starship Troopers, that's what I think. I just think of, like, he's really, really bad. Like, really. Like, it... Like, it's really bad. Like, it's distracting it so bad. And then, you know, Denise Richards isn't good, but um, but then you have a couple other people who I think are actually decent actors in it, you know? Like, that actually know... Like, Michael Ironside. I, I love Michael Ironside. Oh, my I God. Mean, I like, like, Michael Ironside is just great the, at this movie. He's great. I mean, he's a little over the top, but I mean... That, no, that's part he of is like... Right? I feel like he's Michael Ironside be... knows exactly what movie he's in, and it is it is just perfect. <laughs> Yeah, he does. <laughs> he knows exactly what we're just... And then as much as I hate him, Patrick Muldoon, uh, and I'll explain why I hate him in a minute, but as much as I hate him, uh, he's actually really good in this too because he's just this charming kind of smarmy dude. You know, but that's, good that's, looking, that's it. charming Again. guy, and he just knows how to play that role, the sort of suave, I'm the good looking character that's going to drop your girl's panties kind of role. But this is what I love um, about this the, as well, is like they were kind of like, we need a smarmy asshole to play this role. Let's get the guy from Saved by the Bell who was a smarmy asshole in Saved by the Bell. Yeah. Well, you know, he wasn't actually a smarmy... This is the thing. This is the thing. Okay, for people listening, and Kier, you don't really know this about me as much as, uh, as much as you probably should know, but you could probably assume it. I was obsessed with Saved by the Bell as a, as a younger man, right? As a As a like a preteen into my teenage years, I was obsessed. When I got home from school every day, it was to watch Saved by the Bell. That was what I looked forward to as soon as I got home. And I loved Zach Morris. I wanted to be Zach Morris, okay? Uh, and Zach Morris wanted Kelly Kapowski, and I wanted him to get Kelly Kapowski. He got Kelly Kapowski, and all I ever wanted in my life was to have my own Kelly Kapowski. You know, like as a teenager, that's what I thought high school was going to be like. I thought I was going to be Zach Morris. Was that, I thought I was was that find Tiffany Amber Thiessen? Yes, it was. Okay. Yes, it was. And that's, that's what I thought. So I was, I, I was very influenced by this TV show. Now, Patrick Muldoon comes along in uh, some of like the, well, it, like the middle years of Saved by the Bell when everything is going great with Kelly and Zach. They finally got together after this long will they, won't they? And he's this college guy who ends up being Kelly Kapowski's new boss, and he kind of starts to put the moves on her. But the thing is, is he's not a smarmy asshole. He's actually kind of like a nice dude, and that's nice part dude of the who's reason on a high you can't schooler. really hate him. But what you hate is you hate that he ends up breaking up Kelly and Zach because, like, they end up kissing, and then Kelly like calls Zach by the other dude's name. His name was Jeff. She calls him by that at like their homecoming dance or whatever the fuck the dance was and so then they have this breakup because it's this really emotional scene and it actually still makes me emotional to this day so that is why i hate patrick muldoon is because he broke up kelly and zach from saved by the bell and and i know it's not his fault but whenever i see him that's all i think about well it's fine because he gets his comeuppance in this film (laughs) it's fucking justice for zach morris man zach morris that bug is like an ancestor of zach somehow that's what it is. Or that bug used to watch Saved by the Bell. That's why he threw the meteor to Earth to, Earth to blow up Buenos Aires so that Patrick Muldoon, who was this new Starfleet captain. Dude, I just figured it out. Patrick Muldoon. <laughs> so what you're saying is Paul Verhoeven no is as big a fan of Saved by the Bell as you are. He Exactly. Exactly. The whole plot, that's what this is. This whole plot is a justice revenge plot for Zach Morris. Because just think about it. Patrick Muldoon's character just becomes a captain. 
and war hasn't been broken out yet. But as he finally becomes to, or not, not a captain, a pilot, as he comes to be a pilot, well, I guess he was a captain, but as he comes to be a pilot, that's when the meteor strikes Earth so that he would be sent into battle to go and confront these bugs. And then what happens, they don't kill him when he gets captured, him and Denise Richards, not at first. They bring him to the bug leader so that the bug leader can suck out his brain. Because that was the whole point. That's the culmination of the film. That's what this movie's all about. To get revenge for Zach Morris. Because the bug was a big fan of Saved by the Bell. With his te- telepathic powers. And then are they going to use his, uh, his brain power to, make, to turn the freaking frogs gay? Yeah, that's exactly right. That's what's going on. Um, I love Paul Verhoeven now. <laughs> um, okay, well, this also, like, if we're talking about characters... This is something that I want to bring up really quick. Okay, because I I think I actually think Denise Richards is the worst part of this film because I think she looks like she's in a Clearasil ad the whole time. Like this weird <laughs> smile that she's giving the whole time as if anything anyone says to her. It's like she's always grinning at everything. And even like when she's supposed to be in pain, she looks like she's trying to do like pouty. And it's like... Um, it's like she looks, she looks like one of these, these sort of like terrible actresses who everything they're doing, they're always like, okay, but do I look pretty right now? This just brings me to my main point, which is why the fuck does he want to be with Carmen? Dizzy is like so much cooler. Like she's, she's so much cooler. She's hot. She's hot. She she's plays football. Feisty. She, she's like she's a good actor. Yeah. She's good. <laughs> she like, she could like kick your ass. She's just like, she, I mean, like I, I have certain preferences i will say that my preferences are always go more to say linda hamilton in terminator 2 as opposed to linda hamilton in terminator 1 you know that's just the way i am but i'm definitely kind of like carmen's terrible like why would you want to be with her go go be with dizzy death scene aside because she's terrible in the death scene but otherwise she's fucking she's she's fucking way cooler and i even as a teenage kid was like why the fuck wouldn't you want to be with dizzy yeah i'm with you dude i feel you i feel i mean Denise Richards does have a, a sort of bombshell beauty about her that – is it Dizzy? D- Dizzy? Um, Dizzy is – well, the character's called Dizzy. Dizzy. That Dizzy's – what's the actor's name again? I forget her name. Her name is – I knew this. Why am I – why am she I – She was in like like Melrose Place and shit She's like in that Johnny Mnemonic. She was in one of those – one of those coming-of-age teen soap operas. She's in Dragonheart weirdly as well. Dina Meyer. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I like her. I, I mean, I think she, she is, she's a beautiful woman. But Denise Richards is that sort of like bombshell beauty that is just kind of different than than Dizzy is, you know. So you can understand the attraction, the full lips, and the Bambi eyes, and the big beautiful smile. And I thought you were, when you said big yeah. beautiful, I thought you were going for something else there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that too. Plus, I also think that part of it is that Rico, she's kind of like the innocent one, right? Because isn't it implied that they haven't hooked up, they haven't had sex at the beginning of the movie? And then finally at like prom or whatever it is, that dance where she says, you know, my my dad's not home. And so the assumption is, oh, that maybe that's the first time he's been holding out, right? Yeah. Like he could have easily banged Dizzy, Dizzy, but he didn't because he was putting in the work. You know, and mm. when you put in the work, you've invested your capital. You want to get that return on the investment. You don't just make another investment because you haven't gotten a return yet on your initial investment. Basically, so Dizzy is like to to get profitable. Basically, Dizzy is like his ducky from like Pretty in Pink. Yeah, just just <laughs> yeah. Fo- following him around, looking for a sniff of some crumbs. Yeah, and saying you know, invest in my property over here, and he's saying, well, I, I 
like he's not even able to think that way because all of his capital is already put into uh, Denise Richards' field, so to speak. And so he's just waiting for the machines to work. And then what happens is once he gets a little taste of the oil that he's extracted from that that land, the Denise Richards land, he just gets he gets hooked on it, you know. And so he can't look at other investments elsewhere. Listen, I've been doing a lot of economics lately, so I'm thinking about like it this through the lens of political economy. So that's where that metaphor well, and, uh, is and, coming from. But it's okay because when Dizzy dies, it's it's okay because she got to have him. <laughs> that's so, see, this, like, this is what, what I was saying like, earlier about everything being just like so cliche at that surface level of of the plot that even stuff like that, like the romance scenes are cliche, uh, the the battle scenes are cliche, the sort of like dude locker room talk is all cliche. None of it in any way. I mean, I don't want to say it, it, it's not like it was thought through because it was because it's actually like it's almost like so cliche. That it's brilliant, but if here's, that makes any sense. Here's the thing, Austin. At what point does this film suggest that you're watching anything other than a piece of propaganda? So why, how is this film, I mean, for all, you know, potentially within the narrative of this film, we are essentially watching, like, you know, when, like, John Wayne made The Green Berets, which was the, his pro-Vietnam film, you know, or, like, those kind of, like, pro-World War II propaganda movies. Like, how is this, how are we not potentially just watching this, where it's like, you can lose everything, but still be part of the Galactic Federation because your your because your true purpose will be in the state. And so, when at the end, it's kind of like we need real, you know, real great soldiers like Johnny Rico. You know, it's like it's 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 the the whole point of it is, hey, look what a great fascist he's become. Be become a great fascist like him. That. So, I mean, at what point are we potentially watching anything other than a piece of propaganda, which is by itself trite and simplistic? Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, and it is. It, it's so explicit that it's that it's that it's highlighting the stupidity of a sort of militaristic civilization or of a militaristic logic or a militaristic mindset, and Ooh. and it's showing how ridiculous it is by being cliche and over the top and just um, exposing us to all of the tropes that the the war films that 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 aren't self-aware that aren't self-critical but that just simply are actually more propagandistic because they're ideological um that those films kind of just reproduce over and over and over and over again and this film does it but it does it in a way that's like yeah you see how fucking stupid these things are yeah it's stupid for a reason it's because fascism or the logic that undergirds this type of militarism which is fascistic is fucking stupid when i think there's an interesting bait and switch that this film does as well where um you you all through that um through all everything leading up to that initial battle with the bugs you have all of these kind of you have these hints of the kind of fascist elements of of the um of the society so you know he his father mentions like oh i'd rather take 10 lashings in public square or you know the whole thing with the teachers you know talking about how you know true uh you know uh true progress can only be represented by violence from the states and like the the bio biology teacher suggesting that the bugs are superior race because they feel no pain and they they can just keep fighting even though you know limbs get blown off there's all of these elements to which there's kind kind of worrying elements of this society and of, of course the idea that you can only achieve citizenship through um through military service so mm. but at the same time we're still presented with these happy sexy 
you know, sort of a teenage. Interestingly, Paul Verhoeven originally wanted them to be like 18 year olds. Like he wanted them to be very obviously like cast 18 year old kids in the film. But like basically the studio refused. Um, so the studio said no to oh, Paul I was Verhoeven on something. Um, but um, oh, there we go. I did wonder that because like clearly everybody's like in their mid 20s <laughs> or like know? late 20s. I mean, just. Or late 20s. I think, I mean, I think Casper Van Dien was actually 29 when they filmed this film. Um, but Yeah, and he's playing, a, what, an 18-year-old? Yeah. Just freshly turned 18-year-old? But, um, okay, so, and then you go off to the, you go off to boot camp, and it's it's still kind of like, hey, we're hanging out with our buddies. It's all, it's all fun and games, and you're still dealing with this kind of relationship drama and you've got like um gary you've got uh, gary Busey's son who's kind of the the kooky one who also has a great line when he says like funny how they all want to be friends after they rip your guts out um and then and there's a weird element to this film too where it also touches on some oddly what we would deem as potentially utopian concepts in the terms of this is a sort of Po- this is a, a, an almost a gender neutral world where, you know, there's no acknowledgement that there's any difference between the sexes. You know, the army is entirely integrated and so is the, the government. You know, it's a sort of post-racial world where there's no uh, acknowledgement that there's different races in any kind of a way. Uh, you know, so it's and so it, there's this kind of happy almost. Well, yeah, and, and by the fact that like Rico and Ibanez and all of these people's names are uh, They've got like la- Latino last names, yeah, or Latin last names, but they're clearly just like European of European Caucasian descent. I mean, again, he's <laughs> played know? by Casper Van Dien. I mean, you know, <laughs> could you get more yeah, waspish it, or, sounding than that? <laughs> Denise Richards. <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Um, anyway, point is. Uh, it, it looks like a Coca-Cola ad. It looks like you you went to the Coca-Cola uh, casting uh, and you said, like, get all of those people from the latest Coca-Cola ad and just come have them be the recruits in our boot camp. Um, and so then... So, okay, so actually the film kind of almost presents this kind of very happy, smiley vision of fascism. And then finally, when they actually get to the planet, they all just get decimated in this like really incredibly violent and horrible and destructive way where it's almost like it feels like the film just pulls the rug out from you at that point and kind of goes like everything that you everything about like how they these 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 people were trained they had like technological power all of this this is all just out the window now they are just gonna get decimated because they don't know what the fuck they're doing yeah 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 exactly but then they do it. They get their shit together and they figure it out because ultimately they're smarter than the but bugs. But do they? So they outsmart the bugs. Do they? Because again, here's the propaganda part kicking where it's like, we have the technology. We have we we are gonna fight and we're gonna win. But it's like, but when you think about that, it's a recruitment video. It's a recruitment video that's trying to get you to come join the mobile infantry and be meat for the grinder. So yeah, of course they're gonna tell them they're winning. But are they winning? Because they, they don't really still seem to be winning that much at the end of the film. Because, okay, they captured a brain bug, but I guess that's... So what? You know, it's, you know they're still going to have to go 
you know, all to all these colonized planets and try and conquer the various points. I mean, I, I think that's the interesting part of this film is that you actually, when you think about it, you end the film still knowing absolutely nothing and knowing whether, uh, of, of whether they, of, of, of what is actually going on in this conflict and what the, and what the actual like political machinations behind any of it are. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah, that is a good point. Yeah, you're right. I mean, that's what's so interesting about this movie. That's why I feel like this movie is much more interesting than it is enjoyable. I still enjoy the shit out of this movie. Well, and then because it's so interesting, then it becomes enjoyable. Do you know what I mean? But it's it's like sitting there like last night rewatching it again. And I've I've probably watched this film like a hundred times. Like it's like I – I um I was sitting there and I was just kind of going like I feel like I could just like write a book on this movie because it's almost like every single scene like I had like 10 things I wanted to talk about within it. Um you know and that that's that's the thing we'll just have to stop because I'm I I will just keep going on because there's so many things <laughs> to talk about with this movie. Even even just down to the weird details of Michael Ironside essentially gets eaten by a land shark. Um but um you know, or the fact, or just like weird. There's there's genuinely weird, subversive little details. It's like the fact that when like um, Gary Busey, uh, Gary Busey's son picks up the uh, the the green neon violin, he starts playing Dixie. Amazing. You know, yes. Which and you just kind of going like Paul Verhoeven, are you just are you just doing that to fuck with us, or is there like an actual <laughs> point behind that? <laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, but, it's, but it's, it's so got like this just sheen of just dumb studio product on it that it's just it's just so fascinating because it's so like it's like, again, Paul Verhoeven is like that that perfect person who basically like it's like, I don't know. It's like he comes in, he comes to your dinner party, he fucks your wife and he makes you think it was your idea. Yes. Yes, that's what he has done with this film. That's a good way of putting it. And yeah. It's yeah. So I'm. I think like um, I, I I just think you know I I I think in general I, I the one thing I want to say too is that I have this there's, there's two quick things I want to touch on, which is that I've actually read the book that this is based off of, um, which is it's really interesting because essentially I would say in order to understand what the book is like basically take out all the layers of satire of it and play it entirely straight and that's essentially what the book is. Hmm. The book, but I mean, the film, the film, the film doesn't. The film is pretty straightforward. The yeah, satire is sort of removed from the level of plot. Yeah, but there's a I mean? very, very clear element to this film to which it is. You know, there's a very clear uh, satirical element to this film. There's no satirical element to the book. The book is about. Oh, it's just very. It's like it's like a very sincere. It's very sincere. Exactly. Like that, that's, yeah, okay. Yeah, the that's the difference. Is, this film is not sincere, and I think the because it's not sincere, you realize that there's like a critical distancing. But the, so book, is essentially, the book is actually like very sincere. Well, the book is essentially positing um that the the um the usefulness of a military state and the idea of like of that the idea that people could gain citizenship through military service is a positive thing and that, you know, militarization and sort of colonialization all of these things are kind of inevitable things and necessary necessary in the in the um 
in, and 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 the idea is that the the main character receives some sort of sense of purpose by becoming part of the mili- military industrial complex, and you know, and that okay. all of this is very positive. So it's a well, it's interesting. I mean, I, I don't want to get too too into it, but there are certain countries on the planet today where this this does kind of occur. You know, um, Israel is a nation where everybody serves in the military for a couple of years, and it does seem to create a sort of camaraderie or nationalism or or sort of um, fidelity uh, around the purposes of the nation state of Israel, the what we might call the raison d'etat, which is the reason of the state. Um, but it, it's almost like that military service becomes something that everybody is expected to do. You do it so that you can become a better Israeli citizen. And it is interesting to think through the consequences, especially now with, you know, the Israeli-Palestine conflicts and the role of Israel in sort of global uh, global or like geopolitics and and kind of in relation to America. So it is interesting. I mean, there are there are real world examples that we can look to today where this type of thinking does occur. I, I will say that have you um, have you ever heard of a uh, an Israeli movie called Zero Motivation? No. Uh, there's an Israeli movie called Zero Motivation, which is basically about uh, uh, a couple. Uh, it's basically about people who are in the Israeli military who are essentially just trying to wait out their time there because it's like. Yeah. Um, obligation so it's it's kind of make it's a kind of satirical joke on people who uh are people who have to do the military service but really don't give a shit about it um mm. so i'm not totally sure that it does necessarily breed that in everybody but i think that well, of course but even 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 in the, the universe of starship troopers we have to imagine that there would be some people that would defect from mm. the ideology right like nothing is ever completely homogenous Right. But the point is, is that the logic of the system, that's it. It does have a, a dominating hegemonic effect. Right. Yeah. And I think and I think yeah. um, and I think and, and I think it, it is interesting, too, because you see, for instance, like with the propaganda, things like they have a TV show, which seems to be set up to have a sort of more liberal leaning person and more conservative just yell at each other about their right. sort of points. Right. And so there clearly right. is some sort of level of discourse that does still exist within this world. Um, it's exactly. just to what extent that level of discourse is controlled and is, is you know, is, is another question. Because again, all you are ever seeing essentially is the unreliable narrator of the propaganda film. Um, right. But and then um, the last thing I wanted to touch on quickly is that uh, it was announced – I don't know how far it's ever really gone ahead, but there was announced a couple of years ago that uh, Neil H. Moritz, who um, produces the Fast and the Furious movies, he is uh, – he currently has the rights to the book and wanted to do a remake of it, which was a more truer version of the book. And the interesting thing then to say is if – this is a product of the 90s. This film is a product of the 90s, a an era where we can say that there was uh, at least the appearance of kind of um, uh, political stability. Um, what does it say that in the modern age, um, you know, someone would perceive as the right way to do it would be to make a faithful adaptation of this book, which has been labeled as, you know, uh, to, to say the least problematic in terms of its uh yeah. you know, obsession with fascism and militarism. Yeah, that'd be interesting to see. I mean, I feel like it's a ballsy fucking move, man. But I actually think... I don't necessarily mean that in like a, an admirable way. I just mean that that seems like a big fucking gamble. 
But I actually think because one of the things that that one of the things that uh, Paul Verhoeven does is that he makes the fascist elements of the book explicit by dressing them like Nazis. Like it's like he go. I mean, the the book is not self-described as fascist. He it simply it simply is kind of fascist by its by its nature and what it represents. Paul Verhoeven makes it directly fascist. You know, he he hangs a lantern on it. So in theory, this film would not be made with the idea of, hey, yay, fascism. It would just simply be fascistic in in terms of what it's yeah. what it represents. Yeah, exactly. And I think I think part of it is too like Neil H. Morris, he produces Fast and the Furious, so I think what he's looking at is, hey, it's a film with because in the film in the book too, they wear mech suits. So they wear something that's a, somewhat akin to say Edge of Tomorrow. Um but at the the technology wouldn't was was not really at a point where they could have done that in 1997. So I think part of the idea is hey, we put guys in mech suits and they fight bugs, you know. Um, you know, looking at, say, the success of, say, something like Edge of Tomorrow. But I think the interesting idea, I actually think the more disturbing idea is that this film would be shallow and completely unself-reflective in terms of how it deals with the various problematic elements of what it's representing. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see. It doesn't sound very promising to me, but what do I know? So just to wrap it up. It'll probably make $400 million. (laughs) Um, well, that would be low. I mean, you know, if you don't make a billion, your film's a failure. Um, yeah, good point. But um, but Austin, um, so you know, just to wrap up quick right now, what did you actually even like this film? Because you've still not even said if you actually liked this movie. Oh, I mean, I don't know if it's a film that you're supposed to like. You know, I mean, it is enjoyable. It's entertaining. I actually, there was a point last night when I was watching it where I was like, you know, this is kind of fun. It is kind of fun. Um, yeah, it's a fun movie. I think it's intriguing. It's interesting. It's stimulating. It's got some interesting themes. I like that uh, Paul Verhoeven is basically trolling both audience and studios alike. Um, yeah, I mean, Whatever like of a of a movie or a piece of art means, I guess I like it. So, would you say you think it's? Oh, I suppose then. I, I suppose the the alternative thing is: Do you think this is a great movie? Ooh, uh, I think it's worthwhile for people to watch and discuss, and I think it's really interesting what he did. I don't think it's a great movie, though. See, I would say that I think this is a genius piece of art. Yeah, I mean, I can I can almost see that, and I'm tempted. I'm really tempted to say that, but I just I'm not quite there. And I think it's because I hate Patrick Muldoon so much for <laughs> destroying my teenage years and breaking up Kelly and Zach. See, because I would say I think this is this is definitely my favorite Paul Verhoeven film. Um, I'm gonna have to say RoboCop still, but I can see that. I mean, I haven't seen L yet still. L is great. Um, I think I like L. Yeah. L might even be my second favorite. I really love Black Book as well. So it's like, I don't know. It's actually the weird thing is like the the thing that I still feel bad about is I still not gone and watched like any of his pre Hollywood films. Like I've never watched um, The Fourth Man or uh, Turkish Delight or Soldiers of Orange. He's got like so many like pre Hollywood films that I haven't seen. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a great film, but it's definitely enjoyable. It's a good film, and I think it's it, – I guess it just depends on what mood I'm in. I, You know, like if I were drunk sitting around with like a couple of buddies, I'd be like, that's a great movie because I would just find it so intriguing. Like this discussion to me makes the movie much more enjoyable than the movie itself is, which I still think is an entertaining movie. I just think that 
that the, the conversation that it stimulates is so much greater. So does that make it a great film? Maybe, well, I think, actually. I, I, I don't know. But for some reason, I'm hesitating. And for whatever reason, I can't put my finger on it. But for some reason, I'm hesitating. Well, I think the problem with satire and one that sort of goes for broke in the way that this film does is that it's always going to turn certain people off because of the way it sort of steers directly into the thing that it's satirizing. So it's like, say, you take Wolf of Wall Street, you take um, Fight Club. There's always going to be idiots who sort of look at those films and take them on their very, very base level, you know? And so, and I think that always opens those films also up to criticism in terms of, you know, well, you know, are you actually contributing to the problem or are you, if people don't perceive of the satire? So I, I think there is an interesting I, th- I think there's an interesting discussion to be had within the quality of it because there's an element to which they have, you know, something that I say with art house cinema as well. There is a kind of get out of jail free card where anytime you, you criticize something about the film, go, well, the acting's bad. Well, the acting's supposed to be bad. Well, the script is cheesy. Well, the <laughs> script is supposed to be cheesy. You know, it's like yeah, it, it has this kind of like handy, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, satire hat it can put on and say, well, it's all meant to be that way, which is, again, I would be a hypocrite if I did not bring that up because it's something that I criticize within art house cinema where, uh, you know, anything you criticize immediately, well, maybe that's the intention. So, you know, fair enough. But I, I just think that this is a film that every time I watch it, I just become more and more intrigued by the weird things going, ticking underneath the surface with it. And I just, once again, just enjoyed watching it again and enjoyed having uh, a platform to just sit here and talk about it. We need retrieval now. Made a damn mistake. No! The bugs laid a trap for us, didn't they? Ah! TriStar Pictures takes you to the front lines of the next frontier. Kill them all! Starship Troopers. Okay, so for next week's film. Um, if you recall, uh, I won the right to basically uh, take over one of Austin's choices. So Austin basically forfeited th- for this week. So I am going to, once again, be in charge of picking the film. So, you know, I've, I feel like as much as like Starship Troopers is a fun, goofy film, I feel like we're still talking about really heavy subject matters. And we've been talking about heavy subject matters quite a lot. And then when we go into uh, the final episodes of uh, the final episode for New Hollywood, we're going to be talking about heavy subject matter there as well. So, you know, I kind of decided I want to watch something fun and not just like fun in a satirical, weird way where then we end up talking about fascism and all that. I want to talk, just do something that I think is just an absolutely pitch perfect studio comedy. And it's not pitch perfect. Um, (laughs) It is a film about a man, a hero, if you will, who rides into a small town to rescue his nephew. And that man's name is Vinny. And he's somebody's cousin. And Marissa Tomei got a Best Supporting <laughs> Actress not one for it. We're going to talk about my cousin Vinny. I love it, man. I fucking, I haven't seen this movie in so long, but I love this movie so much. This movie is just like, like, it's great comfort food. Like you watch it and you're just kind of like, it just makes you happy. 
And it might give us opportunity to talk about the new YouTube series, Cobra Kai, because it's got Ralph Macchio. And, you know, maybe not much, but maybe we could talk about it a little bit. There's, 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 there's plenty of reasons to talk about all sorts of things off of my cousin video. <laughs> uh, deal. I'm looking forward to it, brother. Okay, cool. So uh, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please do. Um, you can go to idigthismovie.com to uh, look at our back catalog. If you want to find out more about my work, go to kirsaywood.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Breaking Point Flicks. Austin? Hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. I got a film in production right now. We're actually doing some filming right now in Canada. I am not there, unfortunately, but uh, the film should be out relatively soon, I say. Middle of this year, we're thinking. It's called Inventing the Future. You can check it out. The website is inventfuturedoc.com. Yeah. All right. See you next week.